I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So uh, we've done a bunch of episodes on book bans and censorship on this show, and we've talked about the targeting of Black and LGBTQ plus authors. And we've talked about conservative efforts to keep BIPOC and queer texts out of schools as part of the GOP's war on children. And we've talked about how institutions like the Brooklyn Public Library and the Seattle Public Library are responding by expanding young people's digital access to books. What about bookstores? What about bookstores? We are getting to that today because in the best news that I've heard in a while, one of the countries... This is the first thing. It's like... This is maybe the first positive episode that you have proposed hey. in a long time. And now you're totally, I'm just glad. I just want to notice that I'm, I'm a giving you your person. props. This is an I'm optimistic a ray of joy. episode. Okay. Sunny Sugi, one of the country's best-selling and most acclaimed fiction writers, Lauren Groff, is opening a bookstore in Gainesville, Florida. It's going to be called The Lynx. That's L-Y-N-X, like the animal. And it's going to feature frequently banned books. Which is great news, as I was, as you had told me. I mean, this is the story that you brought to me, and we're very excited about it. And um, I just think it's thrilling. Yeah, you know, I was just over the moon to hear about this. I mean, wow, I love bookstores, and I love booksellers, and I also kind of suspect I have no idea about the gigantic mountain of work it takes to run a store and keep it open. Uh, to do it in Florida, the number one state for book bans, a ranking you don't you don't really want to top the charts on that one. So to do it in Florida and to do it this way, I think makes a real statement about what our priorities should be at this moment. I mean, like, really, how fast can I get to this store? And we're thrilled that Lauren's actually here with us today so we can ask her all about it. Lauren Groff is a three-time National Book Award finalist and the New York Times bestselling author of the novels The Monsters of Templeton, Arcadia, Fates and Furies, 
Matrix and the Vaster Wilds, and the celebrated short story collections Delicate Edible Birds and Florida. She has won the Story Prize, the ABA Indies Choice Award, France's Grand Prix de l'Héroïne, and uh, the Joyce Carol Oates Prize, uh, and has been a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her, regular, her work regularly appears in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and elsewhere. Her work has been translated into 36 languages. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We really appreciate your joining us. It was awesome, awesome to end 2023 with the news that you and your husband are opening this store in Gainesville, Florida, where you've lived since 2006. It's always great to hear about a new bookstore, but we're especially excited that yours is focusing on frequently banned books in the state where they're most frequently banned. Uh, Pen America reports that book bans have risen steeply nationwide over the past couple of years, and more than 40% of school bans in that time have been in Florida. The, ba- the banning kind of battlegrounds are primarily classroom and school libraries. And then late last year, the New York Times was also reporting on how books are being challenged in public libraries, too. Um, so how did you develop the idea of a store as a response to all of this? I think it came from this um, idea uh, that we would fight the battle on the people who are waging this war's own turf, right? So if they love business this much, we will we will meet them with business. And so my unofficial tagline for this story, which is called The Links, is um, the bookstore that bites back. Uh, because I really, really <laughs> want to go back after um, this really increasingly uh, fascist um way of diminishing the literary reach of many of these books. And of course, we all know it's very, very important um, to see oneself represented in the books one reads. Um, it's very, very important uh, to to show that there is resistance. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to, my husband and I, we, we debated leaving Florida. Uh, and I don't blame anyone if they choose to leave, especially um, people whose lives are under duress, uh, but we chose to stay and fight. I'm not a big Florida person. I think the most time <laughs> that I've spent there is Kasugi and I have gone to the uh, Miami Book Fair a bunch of times and done the show down there, which I liked. It was fun. It's beautiful. Um, I just wondered if you could just, I'm trying to picture the neighborhood around your store. This is kind of a prosaic question, but like, what is it? like and how did you choose the place for it and that kind of stuff oh absolutely so uh for actually 10 years we were trying to find a place to buy because we heard from everyone that we should buy our store and then um we didn't even look in the place where we're, we're going because the, the uh, Gainesville has changed so radically over the, the the years that we've been here and only recently did they open this new uh park nearby that used to be a super fun site and now it's sort of like the the central park of Gainesville Florida and um it this i'm so excited about this building because it's in this little group of other buildings called south main station and we have a brewery we have um a large concert venue we have a small recording studio we have uh, one of the best restaurants in town we have a pizza place like it's it's very very exciting we'll be the only retail outlet so it's a really really cool place to be uh, and there are a lot of opportunities for events actually because we have so many different uh, ways of uh, doing we could do a huge outdoor event if we wanted to we could do the Miami Book Festival um, but it'd be smaller and more punk in Gainesville 
That's amazing. <laughs> is there so, like foot traffic around there, or is it is it a car driven kind of thing, or do people get out and sort of walk around those shops in that area where you're? Yeah, is? there are no other shops, so that it's a huge opportunity. Oh, okay. But yeah, people do walk around there, and I think we're going to have a cafe inside the store as well, so that should I hope bring people there uh, over the. The course of the day we're also only a mile from the university of florida the flagship university in the state of florida wow. and so you know we're, there's no place that's not crawling with students when the students are here uh but this is going to be a place for everyone right this is not going to be only a place for students it'll be for the, the townies the acrs as well can you you mentioned the store's name and we mentioned it at the top of the show as well and that's it's the links l y n x uh like the animal for our listeners, can you, how did you get that name? Oh, how did you come to the, that? Right. So I'm a little bit mystical in some ways. So the night that we were um, brainstorming, my husband and I, we were driving down the street in Gainesville and a giant, what we thought was a house cat, ran by the front of the car and we almost hit it. <laughs> but it didn't have a tail. And we finally came home and realized it was a lynx, right? One of the two native wildcats in the state of Florida, the other being the panther. And we thought it was such a interesting, a little bit funny name because we're going to be the central nexus, right? Um, Gainesville has other independent bookstores, um, not, um, and we love them very much. I mean, we're going to support them as much as possible. Uh, our competition is, of course, Amazon, um, but we're going to bring in tons of events. We're going to link different parts of the community. We're going to do a lot of outreach with um nonprofits in town and other businesses as well in order to get the books into the hands of the people who need them. So uh, we're going to, to work to try to make sure that these banned books are in the hands of um, students who probably won't have them in their schools. Um, we're going to try very hard to get them to prison populations. We're going to try very hard to make sure that, um, you know, Florida writers are deeply celebrated because, you know, our state, Florida, as you might have intimated earlier, has um, a very bad reputation. Uh, and a part of it is Florida man. Part of it is the fact that we are run by idiots. Um, so, you know, this is part of this is like maybe a little bit of a rehabilitation of the state's reputation and literary bona fides, right? So we're, we're doing our best here. Uh, as we talked about, uh, uh, as we talked about on this show uh, before, you know, in addition to targeting BIPOC and queer communities, book bans disproportionately affect young people. Pen America recorded nearly six thousand book bans in the U.S. between 2021 and 2023. Two thousand eight hundred and twenty-three unique titles over the last two years. So you have no shortage of books to choose from. You're gonna be in your store. Um, how are you gonna curate the shelves? Will you be featuring young adult literature or special sections for black and queer literature? Are there any favorite banned books that you have that you wanna make sure you're gonna put up front? Oh, absolutely. This is not just a banned bookstore. It's not just a Florida literature store. It's, a, it's like a full service bookstore, right? You can come and read New York Review of Books classics, right? Um, but we are going to emphasize and, and put a lot of weight behind these banned books, these LGBTQI plus books. There are so many incredible books that have been on the banned books list that I was just looking, I just printed out actually the um, very recent Orange County uh, list of banned books. And they have things like Paradise Lost by John Milton, which is hilarious to me. Even, what? The, even the angels don't have sex in that. Um, they have like every Toni Morrison ever done. And if, you know, if you're trying to ban Toni Morrison, you're not trying to 
you don't care about literature or you don't care about the state of the, the country's soul. You care about keeping people from seeing themselves in books. You care about keeping people from understanding history in the most beautiful and powerful way that, that history can be shown to people. So um, it's just absurd, right? I mean, there's so there's, there's this one book, and I can't remember exactly what it was, that was banned because it had little cartoons of a little boy's bum running down the streets, right? I mean, this is like nouveau puritanism. It's so, it's so absurd. <laughs> and, and Salvage the Bones, for instance, is, is being banned. I mean, I have so many favorites. I mean, my book was banned in a certain uh, uh, county. And it's silly, right? I really feel like the people who are doing these banning, by the way, it's only, um, it's mostly two people with the new speak, uh, name of Moms for Liberty who are who are doing this. It's two individuals who are doing most of the book banning in Florida. Um, these people don't don't care about anything but um, keeping people from having the freedom of the the choice of what they want to read. Right? It's not about quality. It's not about um, morality. It's about imposing their will on the will of Floridians. And I think that's absurd and stupid and um, the opposite of freedom. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So I'm curious, um, which of your books was banned and which district banned it? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, forgetting the, um, I'm forgetting the county, but it was Fates and Furious. And I think it's because of the sex scenes. Uh, also, I actually secretly think it's because Barack Obama really liked it. And he put it on his list. <laughs> <laughs> think, like, they just saw that and they're like, oh, forget it. She's off. Like, how dare? How dare? They... I mean, it's definitely true that, I mean, some of the, when you, I've seen interviews with folks who have launched banned book challenges. And sometimes I remember um, one of the people who had um, launched a challenge against, I think it was Amanda Gorman, had not read um, the material that they were challenging, which seems to be, I mean, given how many bands there are in Florida, I don't I, I don't see how they could possibly actually be reading all of this material. So just to put some numbers on this for our listeners um, who have heard us reel about Florida before, Penn says Florida's bans increased 148% between the past two academic years with, and I'm quoting here, over half of all Florida school districts experiencing banning activity. And there's specific legislation going into this, uh, courtesy of Ron DeSantis in a conservative state legislature. Um, a couple of years ago, he signed the uh, law that's commonly known as the don't say gay law, which prohibits class instruction about gender and sexuality, as well as a media transparency law that requires K through 12 library materials to go through like this approval process. And there has to be a certified media specialist. And now in the last legislative session, there's a new law that came out of that that requires all Florida school districts to give parents a way to limit their children's library access. A thing that as far as I can tell, the parents of Florida were not actually jonesing for. So far this school year, data from um, a group called the Florida Freedom to Read Project, where I learned all of this, shows that the vast majority of parents given this option to control their children's reading are not opting in. But the school districts are erring on the side of caution, doing things like removing all materials from library and classroom shelves just to be safe. So some in some districts, they're just like, no, there will be nothing on the shelf. So... Are these the parents and kids who are the Link's potential customers? What has the community response so far been to the idea of your store? 
Oh my gosh, people are so excited. We've gotten um, so much help from people who just want to make this thing happen. So all of the, the work going into this store has been local work so far. So um, the logo uh, came from friends of ours. The, the person doing the interior architecture is a friend of ours because people really want this to happen, right? People are so excited um, to have something that they can do materially to push back against um, this very threatening gray cloud of uh, banning and um, restricting. And um, so it's, it's, it's thrilling. And one of the things that, you know, I've, I've been very excited about and working really hard about is uh, this Indiegogo that I've been putting together. Um, it'll be launching on the 10th, uh, and it has incredible things like um, uh, Kristen Arnett and Kayla uh, Kumari have this wonderful game night out in Orlando that they'll take people out for a tour of gay Orlando, which is so exciting. Um, or, and, and Kayla, who's also an editor at Autostraddle, is doing a mini mentorship for uh, LGBTQI uh, people in nonfiction too. And we have people like Hernan Diaz, who just won the Pulitzer, and Karen Russell, Laura Vandenberg, um, doing Zoom, uh, like, you know, calls into book clubs, things like that. So I'm, I'm very excited because this, you know, this is not my store. I'm the person sort of pushing it into the, into the world. I want this store to be everyone's store, right? I want this store to be the store for the, the, the tiny transgender girl down the street whom I love very, very much, but feels threatened, right? I want this store to be for all of the people who are pitching in to help make it happen, for the employees, right? For, for the people who need it, they'll come to the store and tell us what they need and we'll work to try to, to make it happen. So it's, this is a store that has a mission for sure. It's also um, just, you know, bookstores are the most delightful places on the planet and I wanted to build a little heaven in Gainesville. I just wanted to move on to the logistics of setting up a project like this. Like there's a lot of steps between saying like, I'd like to have a bookstore and having a bookstore. Um, my experience with books, independent bookstore ownership is in Kansas city, there's rainy day books, uh, which is run by a friend of uh, Vivian Jennings, who I've known for many, many years and whose son I actually went to high school with. So what's that process like? What's gone into it so far? And what has to happen before the store opens on April 1st? Maybe on April 1st, we're hoping on April 1st. Uh, so it's okay. so much work. You know, I, you know, I put together novels. It's just like four novels to open a bookstore. <laughs> um, I get, you know, luckily the American Booksellers Association is absolutely spectacular and they give you a lot of help. Um, we have been blessed with a fairy godfather in Mitchell Kaplan um, down at Books and Books, who is basically an advisor for us as well. Um, Ann Patchett, when I told her about the bookstore, she wrote me an email. She goes, you full exclamation points. I'm so proud of you. Right? So it's a, it's a very foolish thing to do. I know. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's necessary. And uh, I want to live in a place that has tons of author events that has ideas circulating and um, reverberating through the town, right? I want to bring people into the literary life and uh, a bookstore is the best possible way to do it. That said, we're in the middle of tearing down um, basically everything that's in the physical space right now because it's disgusting. 
Um, and we're going to build it out into something absolutely beautiful. It's just, it, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of coordination, a lot of money and a lot of, uh, uh, organization. My poor husband is doing like a great deal of organization and so am I. So we're, we're working full time on this. It'll happen. I hope. So did you, did you design the bookstore? Did you work with somebody? Or, or, I mean, these must, must be things. I mean, I don't know. All of us walk into stores and we're like, oh, this store is so gorgeous. It makes me feel a certain way. I don't know how often I think about how a space is arranged to make me feel a particular kind of a particular kind of joy or, you know, like the, when I go to certain stores, I associate certain staff members or certain bookstore owners with certain stores, um, like the way things are curated, like a cozy space or like a big open one. Uh, how is this, how is this going to be laid out? Yeah. So I, um, the impetus is actually, I, I think the the term is cozy academia or no, wait, dark academia. So uh, dark academia. <laughs> So it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a little bit quirky. I found this incredible wallpaper at, uh, it's, it's like a flying lynx. So it's going to be, and, and there's going to be a lot of velvets. Um, we're going to have um, just like a spectacular open space so that if someone wanted to come and have a wedding there, um, we could push the tables back and have a wedding. So we want it to be beautiful, welcoming, a place where people can just kind of hang out if they want to, right? This is, everyone's space this is a community space this is not like the the store of um you know for me it's, it's a store for everyone so um you just made me so sad that I'm already married because I now want to get married actually at your store um I will be I will be renew I will be renewing my vows at the links um so I know that your husband has his family has strong ties in in Gainesville um and you have long been been there since 2006 and so you've seen all of these sorts of things change how have how have you seen things change over time like how is the neighborhood that you chose um how has that changed over time and and how do you hope that the store will change it yeah so my husband's grandfather actually when in 1933 when he was a student at the university of florida uh, opened up a bookstore in his dorm room because he otherwise had no money to make it through school. So uh, they had something called the Florida Bookstore from 1933 to the mid-1990s. So any, any Floridian who went through the University of Florida at that time would, would know this giant bookstore. Eventually, you know, it, it moved from being a tiny little 100-book bookstore to being this massive behemoth on University Avenue. And my husband grew up actually in the bookstore. He, uh, he worked there every single weekend, right? He was the person training the, uh, the people at the register who are significantly older than him um, in the computer system. Like he loves uh, the bookstore business. And they got out of that in the 1990s when Amazon came in, which was in retrospect, a fairly intelligent decision. And now, you know, my, my, my father-in-law, who's a beautiful man, former bookseller, um, is so excited to see this store happen because it it's um, it's reconnecting with the roots of the family in the town. So the town itself, when we first moved here, 
it's it's gritty. Like Gainesville is one of these wonderful places that has so many excellent readers, um, so many PhDs, you know, driving your lift everywhere. Um, and it's, it's a, <laughs> but it's a gritty town, right? A little bit in the best possible way. It uh, has a very strong punk culture, right? Um, uh, we have this wonderful three-day weekend over Halloween weekend punk festival called Fest, right? Uh, it's, it has a lot of it's sort of hippie counterculture uh, remaining here as well. So this is a place that's very much, that has always been pushing against the grain of what the stereotype of Florida is, right? It's, it's, it's a place of uh, prairies and wildlife and um, sort of uh, subversive culture. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Um, so since we first moved here, I've seen uh, a lot of construction happening around the university and um, a lot of construction happening uh, outside of the town and sort of what uh, in larger cities would be maybe outside of like um, what used to be cow pastures, uh, perfectly honestly. But we really, really need to make sure that the downtown area, which is where the bookstore will be, is dense uh, with population and has foot traffic and has um, enough housing and has enough businesses to sort of support the downtown. So this is one of the reasons why we chose this space, also because it's very close to the the main um, park in Gainesville, Depot Park, which has just brilliant, wonderful programming. It's, it's very exciting. The place where we have chosen to put the bookstore is very, very exciting. We uh, did an earlier episode with Garth Greenwell on banned books, uh, and he had talked about how important the book the store in his town was for him because he would be able to go and find queer literature to read at a time when he wasn't able to find that work anywhere else. Um, and that's why independent bookstores are important. Uh, you know, you don't, you can't, Amazon is not a place. It's, it's not, you know, um, and there's not a safe place to go. And so it's interesting to me because I feel like independent bookstores are making a bit of a comeback, at least in Kansas City, where I live. Everything died and there was like one store left. And now, though, I can, I can name five or six independent bookstores that have opened in the last... 10 years maybe. So I wondered if you've been talking to other independent booksellers about the the climate and the ability, you know, as a business enterprise, if that if the prospects for independent bookstores have improved in some way. Yeah. And if you know why. I don't know why. I think it has improved, right? I think if you look at anything that the ABA puts out, there are lots of bookstores coming into life on a yearly basis, which is really thrilling and exciting. I think some of it is people want authenticity, right? People want to be able to know the people um, recommending their books. They want to come back, right? They want to, 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 to talk to someone that they trust about the next book that they're going to read. They want to keep their money local. Um, I think, uh, you know, if you... For every dollar you spend in a, a local bookstore, fifty three percent of that dollar will go back into the town, um, and that's important, right? I mean, not shipping our money off to corporate conglomerates, uh, feeding 
the rich already, right? Keeping, keeping the money in town, keeping it circulating is incredibly important as well. I think people have started to understand that, that there is real importance in, in um, supporting our local independent bookstores. I think uh, it's still very, very hard, right? I, COVID did not help independent bookstores whatsoever, uh, but they're strong. Uh, everyone I've talked to, and I just went on a book tour, everyone I've talked to has felt really optimistic about the future of book, book selling. And I'm, I would do it anyway, but it makes me feel better about my decision, decision to do it. <laughs> so speaking of, you know, keeping the money, of course, local and circulating, um, among the people who have a stake in the community, I was reading that you're eventually hoping to have an employee profit sharing model. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and why it's important to you and important for the store. Oh, it's immensely important to the concept of the store because I would never open a bookstore to make money, right? So if the bookstore makes money, I'm r- delighted, but um, it's not it won't be my primary job. I don't necessarily want to to like become a billionaire for, through book selling, which is hilarious. I want my employees to be to, to have ownership in the store itself, right? I want I want eventually I want everyone to be able to um, to live very comfortable lives who who work at the store. It's really, really important. I know bookseller wages are relatively low compared to other um, industries, uh, but booksellers are so profoundly important. And what they do is um, it they are the glue for a community. And I, I want my booksellers uh, to feel as if the store is theirs. Um, yes. That's it. So the profit sharing, you know, who knows when we'll make a profit? Probably not the first year and maybe even not the second year. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily matter because someday we will. And I want them to to know um, that they're valued and they're valued by sharing the profits. Just listening to you talk, I'm struck by how much of what you're saying um, echoes. We did an interview with Lee Hurwitz of the Brooklyn Public Library late last year and they were talking about um, that library's program, Books Unbanned, where young people can get um, digital access to that entire collection. If they if they reside in the United States, they're eligible for that. And sort of the ways that that gets around these authoritarian moves. And I hadn't, I mean, at the time that we did that interview, I don't know that I was really thinking about the ways that bookstores fill some of those roles as well, that they're not only places that you go to read, but also places you go to be with other people. They're community centers, they're places of intellectual exchange, they're places that are safe. And it sounds like it's going to be such an amazing space to go to in Gainesville. So your store is going to be this place of refuge. I think the other place, of course, that you're providing as a refuge to people, in my opinion, is your beautiful work. Aw, that's so nice. Which I'm such an admirer of. And I think, you know, I heard about the store and I was like, this is very exciting. And you famously have this like this uh, this routine that you keep and you've written a lot of books and you're very disciplined about this. And I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you're balancing doing this and your writing life. Oh, sure. I mean, genuinely, and I say this with my children still in the house from winter break, when I wake up in the morning, the only thing that matters 
is sitting down at my desk and doing the work. So I am, I'm doing the same amount of work on my, my fiction. I just closed the door, um, drank my coffee, put my headphones on so I can't hear the screaming and then, and, and write the novel that I'm working on right now. Uh, I, um, I'm always going to be a writer first and, that may also include um, other aspects of my life. The bookstore, I'm envisioning, I'm helping to start, but I want it to run on its own. Um, I want to be Ann Patchett in some ways, who is very involved in the store, but she's not the manager or the general manager or anything. Um, so yeah, so I'm committed to waking up and doing the work of fiction. And uh, the rest of the day is like, I'm actually very soon after this, I'm, I'm talking to the point of sale people. So it's just a lot of meetings and a lot of uh, figuring things out. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Speaking of fiction writing, uh, it would be crazy if we had you on the show and didn't have you read from your most recent novel, The Vaster Wilds, in which a young servant girl escapes from a colonial settlement and has to brave the wilderness alone. Sugi and I both really liked the book, and the heroine can't read, but her mistress's son shows her his books and tells her their stories, and she listens to ministers read from the Bible, and throughout the story, storytelling is important for her survival. Could you read a passage about that uh, to close out our conversation? Gladly. Thank you for asking me. I appreciate it. So this book takes place in 1610 in the winter of the starving time in Jamestown, Virginia, uh, right when the colonists come and they're starving, there's disease, there's famine. And our protagonist, who goes by many names, actually, through the course of the book, has fled the fort. And... Uh, as she's alone in the wilderness, she's not alone because she has her memories and she has the ghost of certain people with her and she has her God. So this passage here is close to the beginning uh, when she's having somewhat of a dialogue with herself as she's running through the woods. And she wanted to weep, but she did not. Instead, she said, but I am not alone for I carry my God in my heart always. And she did, she felt God, a pinprick of light deep within her. But the voice said, and what if the lasting peril is not man at all, but God's own wilderness, the dangerous landscape, the beasts that roam and prey in this place. And now she thought for the first time of the deathly cold of these days at the end of winter, then of the wolves and the mountain lions and the serpents that made a home in this wild uncivilized land. And these were but the known perils, but she thought there must also be perils unknown, monsters uncharted to the imagination of man, difficulties impossible to return from. When she was quite small and the mistress's son Kit was not bent on the torment of her, the few times he had softened somewhat and took her upon his knee and showed her the terrible things in his books, she had seen a picture of a headless man with eyes set deep within his shoulders and a mouth under his ribs, a man with the head of a dog. And Kit would also tell her astonishing things, things educated boys knew, for instance, of the Lemures, who are shades of the malignant dead, and the places in the ocean where sailors were on one side sucked down into a chewing maw, or on the other plucked from the ship by an enormous beast and gobbled. Riddling women with bodies of lions, 
the spiteful fairies of the woods who stole children to raise them in the lands under the hills and left squeaking babies made of clay in their place. And what was not writ in a book or told to her by Kit, her own quick and teeming mind could create, for instance, a woman with the teeth of a viper or a black mist of poison sleeking low in wait. She knew that surely such monsters could thrive in a place so vast and varied as this place was. And of course, even the most redoubtable of the men of the fort were terrified of the worst terrors that the forest held. Not the bears or monsters, but the intelligent man who hated and would slyly murder them. Then again, she had lived among the men of the fort long enough to understand that even among her own, too, there were bad men, for there had been gentlemen the girls all whispered to stay away from, and soldiers with a red gleam of the devil to them, and mercenaries who killed as easy as sleeping, and it would be one of these who would be sent after her, for she knew that at least one bad man would be sent after her, for what she had done could not be permitted to stand." She shuddered and had to put from her thought the tortures this bad man would do unto her, if indeed she were caught. For even a good man was more deadly than the worst of bears, and she had seen what even a blind ancient bear with its teeth pulled out of its black gums and its claws cut off and its eyes blinded in pink cross-hatching could do. In the gardens upon the south bank, in the summer heat, she stood among the watching people in their finery, in their sickness of excitement, and her eyes could not be drawn away from where in the ring the heavy, stinking, slavering, miserable bear had been tied to the stake. Yet when the ferocious dogs were loose to tear at the matty, miserable beast, the bear did calmly throw them, one, two, three, until all three dogs were broken and whimpering and the curs pulled themselves off with their front legs to discover some place to die in peace alone. And all around, the people jeered at the beast, both victorious and slain. But the girl had walked home, carrying an ice of horror in her entrails, and that night the poor old bear entered into the worst of her nightmares, showing its gums with the abscesses of green pus until she sickened, woke to the church bells of morning. And this famous fighting bear was merely a city bear, unused to the thicker older forests of this new wild place. He was a bear that had been tamed. A wild bear would be many times more vicious and brutal than what she had known, like everything from this benighted land. It would be unthinkable in its scale and ferocity, and men would be worse. Lauren, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to you for, for having me on. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, we really appreciate the opportunity to be uh, some of the first people talking to you about this story, which we're we're thrilled about. Um and we want to encourage listeners to check out the link to Lauren's Indiegogo campaign. We're taping on Friday, January 5th. The show is coming out um, next Thursday. So the Indiegogo will have gone up, I think, yesterday. And we will point you in its direction. And of course, listeners do not miss The Vaster Wilds and Lauren's other work available at an independent bookstore near you. And if you're in Gainesville, Florida, Hopefully around April 1st, you can get yourself to Lauren's independent bookstore, The Links, featuring frequently banned books. Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com. 
where the Fiction Nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!